Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. So we're speaking with Russell Carpenter, ASC, and uh, Russell, welcome to the American Cinematographer podcast, looking back on your uh, award-winning work 20 years ago in Jim Cameron's um, Titanic. Uh, we really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you very much, and I'm very happy to be here. I think the first question is, can you comprehend or believe that it's been 20 years uh, since you shot Titanic? Um, you know, where the heck does the time go? It's really amazing. Uh, I, I think perhaps uh, a year after I shot Titanic, I was feeling like somebody else did it. In fact, I remember going to the premiere of the movie, looking up at, at some of the really kind of astounding action sequences at the end and thinking, gosh, whoever, whoever shot this, whatever crew shot this, it must have been really, really hard. You know, it was, I was that, uh, you know, removed at that point. But it, yeah, it is amazing how fast the time uh, goes. And, uh, and when I look back at Titanic now, having uh, 20 years of uh, looking back to do, I see kind of how consequential that film was in that it was uh, kind of like when the fish first stepped out of the water and said, okay, let's be mammals. This was a film that said, okay, it's going to look like we're rooted in the past, which which the film very was in the, in the sense of the big epic films that, say, David Lean was doing and, and that kind of big storytelling but we were doing it, one, with some resources and also tools that come from past filmmakers. But then at the same time, the film was taking a very giant leap forward into what would become the world of digital cinematography. I mean, in terms of what was being done and generated at a computer workstation. You know, you talk about how consequential the, the film was uh, to the industry at large, um, to uh, box office, to, to the film business. How about for you personally, um, you know, have you, you know, in the years subsequent, I mean, have you ever had a more challenging gig? Um, are there lessons you applied on, uh, that you learned on Titanic that you're applying today in your work? That kind of thought. It's interesting because uh, I would tell any filmmaker, any any mortal filmmaker out there, I mean, I, I see certain cinematographers who, like Chivo and maybe Janusz and Roger Deakins, uh, I mean, I, I put them up in the pantheon of, uh, you know, the immortals. But for the rest of us, uh, our careers are going to have uh, ups and downs. And, and I, I went through periods where I was doing bigger films and then very, very small films. And I, I even found that after that, uh, that maybe producers and studios were a little leery that uh, if I was a member of their team, uh, I might just jack up you know, their, their budget, because of when they looked at Titanic, they thought, oh, well, this guy's just going to order every light in the world. And that wasn't the case. In fact, I had to do a bit of disproving that, you know, uh, in, the, in the years that, that followed. Were you involved, by the way, uh, in the 2012 uh, re-release? Uh, I think they remastered it, made it a 3D picture, all that kind of thing? No, I, I wasn't. I was doing other things. And, and also, 
the 3D release actually had uh, some issues, uh, some things that they had to do that we wouldn't have been worried about in uh, 2D. In fact, there's the, say, the iconic scene where, you know, it's up at the, uh, Leo and Kate are up at the bow and she's, you know, she says, I'm flying and all that. The story behind that scene was that most of it was shot indoors, believe it or not. We, we, we kind of stumbled upon uh, when we were out on the, the set, which was rather a, you know, a, a, a mock-up of the ship, but was basically it was a bunch of scaffolding with a, a ship siding on it and two levels of ship top on it. But we stumbled upon one of the most beautiful sunsets that, that we'd seen that day and we and but it, it was a fleeting it was a, a very uh a changing phenomena and we were we were in such a rush that we we barely got uh oh seven or eight good takes of kate and leo up at the bow with the beautiful sunset so jim and john landau his producer said well we, we've got the bones of it now let, let's finish it and the decision was to go back to the era of, say, Gone with the Wind or something like that and build a giant painted backing, a cyclorama that was only, say, 30 feet behind the actors when you look at them. And we did most of the, most of the photography for that scene on a set. And uh, I, I'm really happy because it's, it's very tough for me to see the difference between the, what we did out in the real sunset and, and our stage sunset. Well, and I always wonder in this digital era, you know, the the power of uh, remastering material can be a blessing or curse because, of course, they can alter the creative intent or whatever. In this case, of course, Jim uh, Cameron was uh, involved in, in, in the re-release um, intimately and, uh, you know, it was his brainchild from the beginning. Um, but do you worry about that? And did you see that re-release? Um, you know, was your lensing and, you know, the the things you're most proud of uh, intact? In you know, I, I actually haven't seen the, the three uh, re-release. I I'm not a huge fan of 3D, <laughs> just put it that way. But what, what your question was about the 3D release was that, that when we shot uh, the painted backing, it held up fine for the 2D release. But when, when Jim went into the 3D release, he, he found it looked like a painted backing because there was no dimension to the, you know, it, it was two-dimensional. So I think he sampled some other uh, 3D backgrounds and, and put them in there for the movie. Now, of course, you won an Academy Award for, for this accomplishment. Um, the, the film dominated uh, the, the 98, I guess it was, Academy Awards for a, a, a filmmaker who, who, who's very detail-oriented, who, who, who can sometimes take years and years to make movies, as we all know. But... At the same time, it was a project that, if I understood right, you only had a few weeks prep on because Caleb Deschanel was the original cinematographer. At the time that you um, pulled off the feet, won the Academy Award, all, all that, what were your feelings? I mean, was it mind-blowing that it, you, it even got that far, did that spectacularly well uh, with critics, with your peers, with the box office, the awards, and, and all that? Was it a bit surreal time for for you uh, what do you remember from that hectic time I actually what the word that you use surreal really sums up the whole experience because there were times during the making of the film 
because it was so complex. It's, it's not that anybody, I don't think anybody was saying, well, let, let's just throw money into the Pacific Ocean and make it the, one of the more expensive movies. It was just that it was tough. And a lot of the things we were doing were done with uh, mechanical effects. They weren't computer-generated effects. And then when you saw 500 people running up and down the decks of this huge ship, it was 500 people running up and down the decks of the huge ship. And it was... It was very time consuming and production was very safety oriented. That slowed things down. The cost went up, you know, and, and then it reached a point where people started to figure like this film is never going to make its money back just for what it costs. And so it was spectacular to see it, the film perform when it was released in a way that defied what, what we call the, you know, the computer generated prognosis of, of what a film uh, will make because it, it it made a decent amount of film the first weekend then it actually went up the next weekend instead of down and then it started there started this inverse parabola of going up every weekend it was out and then at that point it had enough momentum to ride the uh through the holidays and all the way into Valentine's Day of the next year. And uh, that was mind blowing. I mean, it was, it was just amazing. And uh, I, I think for me, you know, like I, I feel like I know things about, you know, the way I like now that, that I like maybe a lot better than, than what I was doing with Titanic. But going back to how your your question originated, yeah, uh, uh, Caleb Deschanel was shooting uh, uh, the opening of the the film. He was, and then there were, as they say, those creative differences. And I I was actually shooting another film, uh, and they did decide to bring me on the the film. I would drive down to Mexico every weekend and look at the progress of the sets. And what was so exciting because they were literally at that time building a studio in which to make this film. It was like being the gold rush, you know, in California, uh, you know, when, when shacks and towns sprung up out of nothing every week, I would see a new stage going up. It was, it was, it was incredible. The energy, it was, it was so exciting. And uh, I have to, at that point coming in rather late, I, I mean, my, my story, that when I when I finally was able to talk to Jim and I said, well, Jim, what do you what do you want the film to look like? Basically, his answer was, uh, it's a period film. You know what those films look like. <laughs> so that so running with that, I uh, went to the, went to the art department, went to the uh, visual effects department, and looked at the artwork that had been generated thus far to get an idea of what. Jim might want the night scenes to look like. And, and it was, he, he loves a very luminous night, even though, you know, the, the night of the sinking, the moon was not out. I mean, it's, he, he goes for a, a lighter than normal look and then brings a very, uh, I mean, it's a wonderful blue into it. So I, I had that going on, and then I just started to look at period films that I liked, and and, I, uh, and some of the uh, Merchant Ivory films uh, at that time were, were very beautifully done. And uh, because of the gifts of, of my gaffer, uh, uh, John Buckley, 
he figured out the the enormity of uh, rigging a ship with over two thousand lights on it. I mean, if you just count up the portholes on one side, that's uh, seven hundred and ten lights right there. You know, and then you start from there and work your way up to where we got. But he had an enormous amount of rigging to do. He had, uh, I, I think, 40 miles of cable uh, running up and down and around uh, both all the stages, but of course the ship, and, and a, a tremendous lighting logistics to figure out because lights that worked like normal lights do in, uh, uh, for our above water sets, uh, of course, were not going to work in our underwater scenes. And uh, and when we saw the ship from a distance, a lot of those lights were underwater and uh, could only could only stand being out of water for about uh, two minutes before they exploded because they were in airtight casings. So it, it was a it was kind of a mess of logistics. When Jim called you uh, and Caleb had departed, was it you'd work with Jim on on True Lies? Was that the primary reason that that he thought you, you guys would be a good fit? And did you have any trepidation about stepping into to a, you know a giant monster that was already uh, running downhill pretty fast? Well, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, well, I didn't I didn't feel at that time that it was running downhill pretty fast. I I thought that Caleb is one of my Heroes, I, I think he, he's one of the most gifted cinematographers on the, on the face of the earth, and I thought he was an excellent choice to shoot Titanic. He's, uh, if you see his work on, uh, uh, say, The Natural, it, it's amazing. And uh, but you know, and you have two strong personalities, and I I had shot some of the tests for uh, uh, Titanic, and uh, I kind of knew what. To expect, you know, the 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 level of uh, de- you know dedication and perseverance, and and a, a little bit about from doing True Lies how Jim operated, and I thought uh, I'd really like to do this because when you do when you work with Jim, you you're forced to work at a level that that sometimes are, let's say a romantic comedy is not going to you know you're you're on a you're playing on a field that that's much higher than so many other things that that could happen so i i i'm tremendously fortunate to have had uh, an experience like that i, I mean it's just and it, it was surreal the whole thing the whole especially the journey of the picture after it was released was uh, i i just mind-boggling and crazy i've read a couple times over the years that you had said and i think others have said uh, the movie was about the ship uh, to a large degree um you know part of the mission to to illustrate you know the the gargantuan nature and depth of of this place where people lived and and loved and and eventually died um you know what what does that mean to say uh, the movie's about the ship when obviously you have two lead characters and lots of supporting characters you know looking back i think it's much fairer to say i i mean one starting from the place that whenever jim cameron does a picture it's probably going to be one of the more immersive experiences that anybody can have i mean he has a gift for putting the viewer deeply into the experience so the experience of being a third class passenger of being a first class passenger i mean i think he thought that if it was about the ship it's about the ship as a metaphor for uh, a bit of uh, hubris of, of the Greek, uh, you know, pride. It's a Greek 
Greek myth and going out there in an unsinkable ship and on the very first go runs into an iceberg. He, he thought there was that. And then, and then the idea that there are different classes in our society was very much in place on the ship where you have, uh, how, how you, how you experience that journey depends on how much money you can afford to pay, but also that when the tragedy happens, there's there's a different kind of class that that all of a sudden people show their true colors and uh, and and he's showing that that it comes. I think he wanted to show at that point it just comes down to well, what are you made of internally? And uh, so so it's really yeah, it's about the ship, but a sh- the ship as a metaphor for uh, our our class-based civilization. But I also, I want to say that I knew that because he, he, he said this film has to work not only as an action adventure, but it has to, to work as a love story. And so I think any director who is doing a love story takes a, takes a giant leap of faith, hoping that the chemistry between the actors is, is going to be convincing and a convincing chemistry that you believe that there is a real love story at the heart of the thing. And so uh, the love story made what was happening in terms of the action more, it gave that more gravitas, I guess. And then, uh, and then vice versa, the, the, all this action was a, was a perfect background for the love story. So uh, it, that was a balancing act that he had to, uh, he had to work, and obviously it worked because even people go back and look at the film, both both for the scale of the action, but for the love story at its at the, the heart of the movie. And then you know, although um, it is a period piece, I, I I read he had I think he told American cinematographer uh, when the movie came out that he liked and wanted and enjoyed you know a modern sort of kinetic uh, camera movement. Um, to, to the whole thing, uh, and he also, you know, he had his um, particular, uh, you know, uh, preferences for for certain kinds of lighting, like that blue night lighting and, and things yeah, like yeah. that. Um, yeah. So how do you add, you know, his preferences and modern sensibilities to a period piece? And, um, I mean, obviously you succeeded, but, but you know, what was the, uh, the path well, to succeeding? Well, well, some of the things, and I, I think of... Uh, I, I think of two instances, let's just say two scenes, the boarding of the ship. You have the way the upper class goes up and they're, they're walking and, they, you know, they're even walking their dog onto the ship. And, and as they go up the ramp, it's, very, it's almost like a coronation. It's a procession. And, and, the, and the camera is not moving a lot. But then you cut to Jack and his friend and they are charging Full bore with with a handheld, I mean, steady cam, but steady cam that that's working. The great uh, James Miro as a steady cam operator is weaving just as fast through that crowd in a way and moving the camera that's very kinetic and very snappy. And then just let's look at one more scene: uh, the third class dance uh, down below decks. Uh, you have not only k- kinetic. Uh, camera work again as, as everybody is up and dancing to this just amazing Irish music. But I, I went through and bashed through, uh, I cut holes in the ceiling uh, to and put uh, park hands pointed straight down, very, very hot. So these dancers would go through very hot pieces of light and that would aim at energy. 
And then, and then he has just a funny cut where he just cuts to uh, the men with their cigars upstairs in a, you know, some, some stateroom and the camera's not moving at all. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just the action jerks to a stop and, you know, and so, so that's using the camera and, and the lighting to, to differentiate. You get down there, uh, the, the uh, Fox Baja studio there, and I think Rosarito Beach, and it's still, I think by the time you were shooting, uh, starting to shoot, it was still not complete. Um, uh, and then you got high winds. I, I heard that wreaked some havoc, you know. Yeah, uh, it, what, what were you thinking about what you got yourself into? The, this was uh, not far into the uh, use of balloon technology for lighting, and I was, you know, uh, helium balloons with lights inside and I thought oh this is going to be a great way to have a soft light here uh, so we would go out in the uh, uh, and start shooting around the ship at night and I, I really liked the, the light but what was happening was these freak winds were coming out of nowhere not not every night but maybe every third night also the, the, the gusts would come not off the ocean but the other way and I don't know that they would gust up to velocities that were just blowing stuff over. And of course, the balloons were the most vulnerable thing. In fact, we had, I remember watching because we had these balloons tethered to scaffolding on wheels and the ballast was on the scaffolding. But soon, all of a sudden, you just had this wind farm. And I remember watching electricians try to chase these balloons, which were, which were moving like ghosts toward the ship. They were being blown across the uh, pavement because they were on wheels and they were just like, you know, out of control. And we never knew when this was going to ha happen. So we went to a style of lighting, which I was not happy with, but at least allowed us to sh shoot without shutting down, which was the using musco lights which at the time that's just portable football lighting and the lights had to be far away and it gave it a much harder look uh, than I wanted, but it allowed us to shoot. So yeah, nature was, we, we did, we had our, our problems with, with nature out there quite a bit. And wasn't there um, over the set a, a massive reflector built? Some someone said it was like the largest one ever, or something crazy like that. You know, what other, you know, what do you remember about that and any other crazy rigs and things you guys well, had to do? Well, the thing about the, the this massive reflector, which was basically uh, the idea was that uh, there were, well there was a huge construction crane uh, on track that rode along the side of the uh, ship. And it had a, a, a huge arm that swung back and forth like, like one would over the top of a skyscraper. You see these things all over the place where, where buildings are being built. And uh, the idea was that we would hang a reflector, a big reflector. I don't know. Not, it was actually a soft bounce kind of thing. And we hit light into it. And then we get a very beautiful light from the, the top. And, and what happened really early on is Jim was watching the crane and the crane operator was really, really good. And we were, we were talking about how to get our, our top shots on the, on the ship. And originally the idea was to, to, we'd have to have a, 
a helicopter. Well, he watched this guy move this stuff around, and this guy was an artist, and he said, he said that's our helicopter. And so the crane, and, and this was great because it allowed shots that, you know, some of the most amazing shots, like the, the, the one at the end of the, the film where you're looking up, like into the sky at Rose and Jack on the back of the ship, and the, and the camera moves up and then tilts down the, the length of the ship as it's sinking into the water. That, uh, uh, that would have happened no other way. I, I don't think that would have been possible any other way. So now what we did was we hung a, um, uh, basically a little cage. Uh, uh, I mean, just enough with a water. It was basically a plank with a hat, uh, guardrails around it. And Jim would be up in that with uh, a camera, a helicopter cam uh, mount hanging under the cage, which that became our helicopter. And we'd be able to do some very, very delicate moves. I was up there uh, with him usually. My walkie-talkie was making the, uh, the monitors uh, kind of fritz, and he hated that because I was talking to the crew down below. So I was relegated. I had to like virtually walk the plank and they, the plank was extended outside of the cage, and I, I had a, my, my little guard chains on or guard ropes on, and, and I would just stand out there at the end of that uh, platform night after night, as, uh, just so I was far enough away from the uh, monitors. And that, that's how we worked for, I mean, weeks. And it, it was, that was surreal, too. Just floating about the ship for that much time, and that whole uh, the, the whole lighting approach. I mean, the, his blue night lighting. I, I guess there was some sepia and warm tones and stuff like that. Um, would you? I mean, obviously, if you were making this movie today, you'd have all sorts of digital help. You, you'd have newer um, instruments yeah. and, and all that. Would you basically light it the same, um, or would there be a lot of differences? I guess LEDs would be available to you today. Yeah, I think LEDs have changed everything. I, I would love to have had the opportunity to, say, say, maybe not go so strong with the blue light, but that would be a discussion you know, to have with, with Jim. I, I think there are tons of things we could do now, not only because of LEDs. Digital intermediates weren't uh, yet born, and we, the film was done uh, in the classic lab fashion. And I think that that gives uh, cinematographers opportunities today to be far more nuanced in their, in their lighting. And I, I certainly would have taken advantage of that. And then, of course, um, you know, we, we have the flooding scenes, various compartments and everything as the ship it gets hit and it's going to go down. And I, I'd read over the years about, you know, actors and stunt people really being put through their paces on that. But I'm assuming the camera team uh, as well, you know, was there a lot of anxiety about that part of the shoot and, and how did you push through that? I would have to say that uh, that was one of the toughest things because we were all working in water for hours and hours and hours. And that, it's very, very tiring. It's, it's exhausting to be in water that, that much. We, uh, as far as safety, uh, despite some of the things I saw printed in magazines at the time, safety was really a paramount issue. We would sometimes have meetings, safety meetings in the morning that were, you know, very, very long because not only were we doing the safety meeting in English, but Spanish. And, and then eventually when there was a contingent of Hungarian uh, stunt people that came in, that became long before you do anything in water because we had these sinking sets that were basically being lowered into 
huge tanks of water on cables, kind of the way a coffin might be lowered into a, you know, a, a, a dug hole in a graveyard. Well, the same thing was happening. The There'd be a pool of water, this set would sink into it, and it would look like the water was rising uh, from the camera's point of view. Those those scenes took forever. I mean, anytime you put a light in and it was going to go, it was going to be underwater or do anything, you had to knit, you basically had to sh screw every light into the, the, the floorboards. Uh, before we would do a take, divers would go under, uh, people would, the whole set would be searched by the safety team, even with having divers go under the set just to make sure nothing was down there that, you know, anybody would get in trouble with. It was, it was just a colossal undertaking. And then the timing, like we shot a lot. Of, there, there's the huge dining room. We shot a lot of our daytime scenes with conventional lighting. And then you go back to the same dining room and say there are 100 tables in there. I mean, it was huge. Every light in there now is set to be able to go under underwater because the set is going to sink. And that means that every light has to be enclosed to protect it from exploding but if that light is on too long like over two minutes and it and it hasn't gone underwater then it's going to explode because everything over overheated so uh, the timing was crazy and, and just besides that then sometimes it was a, a, a prop fiasco too not a fiasco but the things that they had to do you have a hundred tables you have a hundred place settings you have tablecloths napkins chairs uh you have uh, flower arrangements, and then you sink it, and everything goes everywhere. And so, you know, it's just a task to get back to one. And we we, we would have teams of people try uh, because the lights weren't you know perfect, and they would go out on a take. You know, some of them, so those were hastily taken off and replaced, and we try and, and get back to doing another take as fast as we could. But nothing went fast, and it, it was exhausting. And there were times that, that the crew was, especially in these scenes where water was being forced, we had these huge water pumps that would force the water to flow through the hallways at, at very fast speeds, like you were in a rapid. And the crew was in that water with the actors. And, and occasionally, I mean, maybe one or two times, you would have a, a, a take where the actors go by, you know, the cameras, and then all of a sudden there's the, uh, the, the script person floating by because, you know, they, they lost hold of their, uh, their, from their station and, and became part of the scene. So uh, that that's a little bit of the the chaos of that. And even though I think we we weren't really working uh, at that time long hours by I mean we were probably working twelve hour days plus lunch. But because of the exhaustion, I mean you you just want to go to sleep standing up leaning against the wall. It was really exhausting effort. And you know speaking of exhausting um, in another category. Uh, you know, what was the collaboration like with, with the visual effects team? I mean, they, you know, for the digital ship and a couple other things, they, they were kind of, you know, on the cutting edge, revolutionizing that, that industry at that time. Um, but, you know, you got to get play to. It wasn't as simple as today or, or as flexible as today. Um, you know, what were the needs and challenges you had to serve their needs while also making sure everything that Jim Cameron wanted, uh, you know, what was done up to spec? What, what do you remember about that? process 
I, to me, it's interesting because Jim knows what can, you know, he owned Digital Domain. He knows what can be done and what can't be done. And he, he would push, he was pushing on True Lies and he pushed on Titanic. There were some times when we weren't going to get the perfect green screen set up in the back in, in, in time. And he'd say, well, let's just go with this. I know we can, I know we, I can get the separation I need. Uh, and so, uh, you know, sometimes he says like, this is not perfect. And the, uh, and the, uh, representative who was handling the shot from digital domain would say, wow, this isn't perfect. But uh, Jim would say, let's go anyway. And now, now, of course, the selection tools and stuff and things for making mats are much, much better. But uh, yeah, it wasn't quite as perfect as uh, as uh, I might want or the people who were doing the, the composites might want. And then others were excellent. It just, it just depended on how much, how much uh, time was available and how, how big the shot was. And, and, and things were, even though uh, all the big money shots were carefully storyboarded and budgeted and figured out, uh, now sometimes there'd just be changes. You know, Jim would say, well, this, this angle is a little more, I like this angle a little bit more than the one that was storyboarded. And it, it might drive some changes that, that you, you might not be quite ready for. But uh, what a revolution we've had. I mean, uh, just a few years after uh, Titanic's release, you, you have Peter Jackson marching armies of thousands of orcs across the screen, and they're all digital. And then, and then the sky's the limit. It seemed like it just opened up in terms of, of what worlds could be created. In terms of the digital work at that time, what was nice was that the, uh, basically the ship was modeled off the plans for uh, the ship Titanic, the real ship Titanic, and the dimensions were the same. So they, uh, Peter Lamont, uh, the production designer got the plans and then worked with the visual effects, uh, Rob Legato, and they used the plans to basically build the ship in the computer. Uh, what, for one reason is there was a very, you know, there were a couple of very wide shots of the ship that, that at that time were really, really, really tough to do that they needed those plans for, but they also mapped the ship so that, Using that, they could pick points on our live, uh, the the work that we filmed, and take those points and configure them to the what they had as a computer model for the ship, and be able to do the the set extensions that uh, they would need to to uh, especially during the shots where the ship was going into the water, uh, extend the live action further, and then. Um... At the same time, you know, that we're talking about these big ticket items and, and the spectacular visual effects and, and some revolutionary stuff. At the same time, I, I did read an interview uh, with you um, a long time ago where you said you were probably most proud of, um, you know, some of the intimate, dramatic, romantic type stuff um, captured more traditionally um, that you were able to accomplish. You know, why, why was that? Maybe you can expand on that. And, and what parts of the movie, you know, are you talking about? My my background is I was trying to find my way along. I, I was just happy to take anything that, that I could take. And at that time, a lot of that, what was generating anything you could call non-union work, because I was 
you know, it was much harder to get into the union at that time, was being done by uh, companies like New Line, and they were doing horror movies, and then uh, what was popular at the time were uh, karate uh, movies, martial arts movies. So I did a lot of that, and that's uh, that was my bread and butter, and I got, you know, just fantastic experience doing that. But I, I never thought I'd have the opportunity at that time to shoot a period picture. So uh, it, it was my chance. Well, say there's one scene where, where uh, Kate's mother uh, is lacing her up into a corset, and uh, and there and she's and the mother is talking about the fact that that Kate's character Rose really must marry this this guy Cal because they've lost all their money and they really need to marry back into uh, to to some financial security, and it was. The scene itself was very simple, but I, you know, I love the nuance of the lighting. I bounced light from below. I read, uh, I had very simple little things that I did, which, which now I rely on a lot is, uh, you know, because I, they didn't have source fours at the time, but they kind of had Lico's and I, I just found a way to just accent one little vase of flowers in the background, really simple stuff. But for me, I was really happy with the, with the nuance of it. And I, I know that's one of my favorite shots in the movie, and I think it's one of uh, uh, Jim Cameron's favorite favorite shots. And, and in fact, when uh, Jim saw that shot, that scene on the on the, on the chem at that time, he, he said, "Well, you know, Merchant and Ivory, they can just they can just eat my shorts." You know, he, he, he was that happy. You know, yeah. For, for those of who don't know. Uh, Merchant Irie films were, were like one of the high bars for period uh, films. You know, obviously, uh, the movie were made today. I, I'm almost positive he'd be shooting it digitally. And, you know, you've referenced, you know, that you'd have LED and other tools available to you. You didn't have then. But if you had to do it again, um, it was so colossally successful. Would the same basic blueprint or template be... Uh, be the way to go, you know, obviously updating some of the technology, um, or are there things you wish you, you know, if you had a time machine, you'd go back and, and do a little bit differently, um, that no one, maybe the rest of us wouldn't really notice because we're too busy enjoying the movie and giving it Academy Awards and stuff. You know, I think the fun for any cinematographer is to come up with a solution. And sometimes you come up with them out of necessity that, uh, that you do a little thing and it makes a, a big, uh, big difference uh, when Kate Winslet's character is uh, introduced in the film it's a top shot looking down on the hat that she's wearing and 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 Jim said you know I want this to be the Audrey Hepburn intro in My Fair Lady you know that that, that it's you're looking at this magnificent hat and then you and then as as she tips her head up you discover this face and as we were doing that you know, and this was before you could do anything in digital uh, correction. I just said, well, oh, you know, well, let's, I thought, and this was just before we rolled. Oh, I think I want her face to glow. So as the camera moves down and her hat tips up and her face starts to reveal, I just reached over and took the, uh, the aperture ring and uh, overexposed her face you know, I just did it on the lens with my, my hand, overexposed her face uh, about a stop to a stop and a half. And what it did was it just gave that face a glow. 
And and so that's a little thing. And that that's that's uh, what we call prehistoric technology now. I don't think I would change the visual. I mean, maybe the of course the technology. A lot of things would be easier. Uh, but in terms of the approach, uh, there was something about how the actors were lit and how the rooms were lit that I wanted to keep very much in the language of what I grew up thinking was epic photography, how people were phot photographed in a, in a period film. So I, uh, so I don't think I would change that, but, uh, I do fall into just because I get introduced to, to things that, that make life a lot easier. And, and now, definitely, um, with the introduction of LEDs, uh, there are certain things uh, they make much easier. But I, I might still use uh, more conventional lights when, when lighting a person, just because the, there's a beauty in tungsten light that's, that's just so nice, out of a conventional tungsten instrument. We have to wrap up in a minute, but, you know, before we do, um, you know, maybe your thoughts or your reflection uh, on obviously how the movie uh, impacted your career overall. You know, you won the big awards and stuff, but did it alter, you know, your career, your life um, from where you were heading and, and, you know, and sort of the legacy that Titanic has in your life personally? Well, uh, it did in one way. I mean, it's... Um... Uh, you know, I, I think I could get into interviews that I couldn't have gotten in before, you know, just to, to but you're always still, it's always the chemistry, you know, in terms of that you feel when you meet a director and it is, it's good work and, and to go, well, is Russell the right person for me or is he not? Uh, but I, I think at that time, because it's still, because I had come into features from uh, documentaries and it was kind of a little bit late. It was in the, when I was in my thirties, and I, I still felt like I was just, just beginning. And then this marvelous thing happened and I, uh, and this surreal aspect of, Oh my God, I, I've won an Academy award. And it really did. It feel like it felt to me like it was happening to somebody else at that time, you know? And I, and then I, I kind of didn't know what to do with my, so after that, and it, it was a, it was a kind of a feeling of, uh, uh, does everybody expect that I'm just going to go out and, you know, just, you know, I had these expectations that I was grappling with and, and it took me a long time just to get to the point where, Hey, there's still going to be ups and downs. Uh, uh, like right now I'm, I'm busy, I'm happy. And, uh, but I, I know for that, there's, there's going to be times when, uh, I just need to cool my jets and, and, you know, keep working on what I know how to do in terms of learning that, that, that it may be a while before the next wave comes rolling over the horizon, you know, to catch. And so uh, that's, that's what I, I tell people that you just, no matter what happens, you still have to be patient. You still have to persevere and, and you still have to have a, a tough skin. So, uh, I, I think the thing that's changed for me over the long run, just in terms of personally, is that now I just do stuff because it feels like, Oh, these people would be great to work with or, or this seems like fun. I think I have a lot more fun now on the set than than I used to, 
you know, because I, I knew I loved doing what I did. It was, uh, can you love it and still have fun and not feel like, oh, something went wrong and it's like totally the end of the world it, because it's not. But it's, uh, that's, that's the main lesson for me right now. Sounds like you're enjoying life and, uh, you know, this, uh, this memory um, of this great accomplishment uh, lives on and uh, the importance of the movie uh, to the industry uh, lives on and uh, you should be real, uh, real proud of it. I appreciate you taking um, time to join us on the uh, American Cinematographer podcast. Thank you so much. This has been the American Cinematographer podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.